Welcome to Screen Quest, a podcast where a fellowship of film lovers and armchair movie experts plays film roulette. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Waterman, joined by May Finch. Hey. And of course, Will Rotondi. Hey, how's it going? It is going well on today's episode. <laughs> yes, we'll be watching the first of two films by Bong Joon-ho. Uh, the first of which is, of course, Snowpiercer, and then we will be watching Parasite for next week's episode, selected, of course, by May Finch. Very excited to get into all of that. We will, of course, be drawing a new side quest, but first, let's do a little catch up. It's been a, a hot minute since we have checked in with what we've been watching. Films, TV, it's all up for grabs. So I'm curious to hear. Uh, Will, I'm going to start with you first. What have you been watching, good sir? Oh, man, a ton of stuff. I finally caught up on Top Gun Maverick. I got into watching The Last of Us, which, oh, holy smokes, dude, it's great. Um, I went and even saw that movie Megan about the killer robot, which was <laughs> hilarious. And I love it. And I fully endorse it. And I'm so stoked they're going to do a sequel. And uh, and actually started catching up on an old TV show called uh, Farscape for any sci-fi lovers out there who might like stuff around the 90s. That was something that I never really uh, had been on the list to do, but had never gotten around to it. So that's been that's been one of it I've been up to lately. The only thing I know about Farscape is Abed and Community is uh, talking to what he doesn't know is a gay guy at a bar and the gay guy thinks he's flirting with him and he's just talking about Farscape nonstop and he's like, Jesus Christ, I've been trying to pick you up for like an hour. I don't care about Farscape and Abed's like, huh, uh, whoops. Uh, <laughs> so the little tidbits that come out of that, I've always been curious about it. It looks like a um, kind of a neat, like it's what, like. 2000s or 90s right like sci-fi i want to say 90s yeah. i'd have to go back and check but yeah i want to say like late 90s um probably around the same time stuff like babylon 5 was coming out because like the kind of shit. yeah because yeah. like the like the special effects kind of feel like the same they're kind of on par with each other with that um and the costuming and everything is great i mean it feels like watching like if you liked guardians of the galaxy for all of the color that it's got and all the cool makeup like i think you would like first game neat yeah it's, it's been on the list for a while and i'm glad you finally saw top gun maverick uh did i uh, oversell it or it, like was it is like as described like i, I was so was, ready to be disappointed was... after everyone hyping it for so long <laughs> and i just can't believe it uh no it was it was it was beautiful like it was what I wanted, and I was finally glad to see a movie that like didn't end on like a dour, bittersweet note, like without spoilers or anything. Like it was just it was what I wanted out of an action movie that was a sequel to something that was, you know, even though it's been so long since, like it just it had it hit all the right notes, man, for me, and and I loved it. So I would definitely recommend it. May Finch, how about you? Well, I also need to watch Megan because everyone has been raving about it. And now that I have Will's endorsement as well, I have to see it. So uh, <laughs> that'll be on my watch list this week. Uh, this is an annoying answer, but I've been watching a lot of like form check videos on YouTube. <laughs> I got back into weightlifting recently. My health has been finally in a good place for that. So yeah, my YouTube history is just like a bunch of buff ladies picking up heavy things. Um and that's been going great and i haven't been watching much tv besides that um i did watch a bit of an anime series it, it kind of has like cowboy bebop kind of vibes called the great pretender uh, it's mm -hmm. about a con artist um it's it's interesting i didn't love the ending but most of it's good i would say stop after season one it seems like that anime is either like that's sound advice or it's like um beware because after season one there's like 20 more seasons and uh, <laughs> it's worth getting through like 17 of them but like they're all chopped up like one piece everyone's always trying to sell beyond that i'm like no thank you i don't have that kind of time but i respect the hustle yeah i i'm with you on one piece there i want to i want to like it but uh <laughs> Uh, along with Will, I have also been watching The Last of Us this last week. 
with no uh, specifics whatsoever, was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Like exquisite hour of television, but it fucking wrecked me. Um, but it was just great. Uh, Nick Offerman and um, Murray Bartlett, I think is his name. Like I think deserve some acting accolades. Just incredible stuff. And uh, it's con- the show has continued to like really delight and surprise me with uh, how faithful it is, but also when they make changes, like they really service the story, like and don't feel like it's just a get out of jail free card of like this is going to be hard to do in TV form from a video game. Meaningful changes all the way. Just love it. Um, let's see. I think I talked about Avatar: The Way of Water maybe the last time we talked, but in case I didn't, I really enjoyed that. Technically, it's it's amazing. Um, it is better than the original Avatar, but uh, I still wouldn't categorize it as like oh, like oh my god, like must see movie. It's must see in the theater movie just because of how technically beautiful it is. Um, I'm down for a third. I don't know about a fourth and a fifth as is planned, but there you are. Um, I went on a big old black and white binge and watched Raging Bull and Citizen Kane, which are two very different movies in some ways and very similar in others. And that was a nice little unintentional pairing there about two men who fuck everything in their life up um, through toxic masculinity. Uh, and that was a good old time. Um, I, I really know how to manage stress. Apparently, I've, I've been a little anxious if I'm if I'm giving you a little peek into my life, and so I'm like, oh, let's seek out like those kinds of movies. Like, I don't know what it is about my brain. But I I just thought you're really comforting. into like tragic heroes or anti. I am. I am. I find it oddly comforting. Maybe it's like it could always be like that. You know, yeah. like, it could always be worse. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um. So yeah, that's what I've been watching. Um. Always good to check in. Uh, have you decided? Are you going to play the game or watch the show first for Last of Us? May. Oh uh, God, I keep going back and forth because I the PC port doesn't come out to like March, but I do usually like to play the source material for a thing before I like read or whatever the adaptation. So it's eh, I'm torn. Uh, Will, what do you think? I know I know Chris's opinion. I think you should watch it. Okay. Yeah, I totally <laughs> think you should watch it. It's worth it. There you are. There's, there's. Uh, right. I'll, I'll <laughs> update the pod next week. <laughs> Judgment has been cast. <laughs> just be in the right headspace. That's all. It's just not always the happiest thing, but it has been beautiful. Um. All right. Well, how about a side quest, and then we are going to dive right into Snowpiercer, which uh, I'm excited to talk about because it's been. Uh, I think since the year it came out, I've seen it last, and it was very cool to revisit that. So here we go. Ah, I'd like to thank, which is uh, basically based on whatever criteria you want. Uh, talk about a film that has been influential in your life and, you know, a strong influence on loving movies or maybe something that sticks out. Um, it's a pretty loose category. I think I'm going to choose The Graduate for this one. The Mike Nichols, Dustin Hoffman film that uh, really introduced me to my favorite era, which is New Hollywood and the turning point of cinema. It was this interesting little twilight zone for my young, you know, teenage brain to go, okay, there's classic films and then there's like modern films and then there's this like, what is this era? You know, with like, there's like pop music on the soundtrack of Simon and Garfunkel, right? But it, everyone's so unhappy and it has an unconventional ending that I won't spoil because it may or may not be on our, our you know, nominations list and uh, just a wonderful cast of characters. And um, just, it was like instantly different. It led me to other things like Midnight Cowboy and Easy Rider. And I kind of went down this rabbit hole at our little local library of, all these films made in the same era um, and kind of it was like connecting the dots with directors and discovering all this great stuff. And even though I would say my grandmother is responsible for me, like loving classic films and getting into movies as a whole, I think like the idea of like really getting into uh, filmmaking and uh, the different types of stories that can be told um, is probably owed and wanting to study film probably uh, more specifically to that film. Have you guys seen it before? Have you seen The Graduate? I have not. Nope. 
Oh, man. Well, um, again, I won't say whether or not it's on our list, but that might be kind of an answer in and of itself. <laughs> uh, it is like a really, really great movie. And uh, I got to show it to Marianne, Marianne pretty early on in our uh, dating and um, was a fun movie to like, always a fun movie to watch people's reactions to, I should say, because the way the narrative unfolds is uh, is a bit unusual and offbeat. And uh, Dustin Hoffman is just so great. And so is, you know, uh, Anne Bancroft, who plays Mrs. Robinson, is just uh, just a treat. Since I have no commentary on The Graduate, <clears throat> I do feel obligated to mention that I named my Roomba Dustbin Huffman. Dustbin Huffman, <laughs> that's great. That's amazing. Oh, awesome. Uh, well, uh, ho- hopefully someday you will get to watch it um, and we can report back. But uh, I'm going to turn it over to Mae Finch uh, for her nomination and uh, to lead the discussion around the first of two films, uh, Snowpiercer. So take it away, May. Hey, that rhymed. <laughs> we have to use that from now on. Um <laughs> Okay, so yeah, a lot of people in the U.S. are probably pretty familiar with Bong Joon-ho by now, but in case you haven't heard that name before, uh, he is a South Korean Academy Award winning filmmaker. His films have a characteristic dark humor and heavy social themes. Uh, Parasite is probably his most famous film in the U.S., but he's also known for Okja, The Host, Memories of Murder, Barking Dogs Never Bite, and of course, Snowpiercer. So Snowpiercer is a film that uh, I guess ties to what I said a little while ago about like fantasy and running on vibes because a lot doesn't make sense, I think, (laughs) for the whole world building and setup and stuff. Um, But uh, it came out in 2013 and was based on a French graphic novel that actually came out in 1982. And I think it's a very interesting concept. And I guess I kind of wanted to start our discussion with like this this world that we're brought into and kind of what you guys make of it basically global warming big problem uh internationally i guess um people decided to try the geoengineering route and it backfired massively plunging the earth into a catastrophically cold environment and all of humanity is now on this perpetually running train uh snowpiercer there are a lot of people on the train i think there's around 100 cars on it uh the tail of the train is uh physically and symbolically where the lowest of lower class live and the, the head of the train is where wilfred who like owns the train and everything uh lives as well and plot-wise, uh, it goes about as you would expect. Uh, there is a rebellion in the tale of the train uh, led by Curtis, who is played by Chris Evans. And it's, I say it's led by him. He, like, is kind of getting direction from uh, this older character named Gilliam, played by John Hurt. Um, there's more to their dynamic that is revealed later. But uh, together, they are pushing forward to the front of the train with the goal of taking the engine. Um, They get help from Nam Gong Min Su, who is the kind of like security expert from the train, uh, played by Song Kang Ho and his daughter. And as they're moving up through the doors, he's unlocking them and you get uh, some kind of mysticism happening as well with the daughter who is apparently clairvoyant and can tell what's going on with the next doors as they're moving up the train. Um, There's a lot of other things happening that we'll get into, but that's kind of the overarching plot. And Curtis does eventually make it to the head. Uh, Not all the characters do. And uh, is surprisingly offered a chance to take over the engine because Wilfred is old and dying. Uh, Ends up not doing that because of a pretty horrific reveal about what was happening to the kids in the tail section. They're being used to maintain the engine of the train. Uh, and uh, with Song Kang Ho and his daughter just uh, blows everything up. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the, the the final scene is of uh, 
Nimgong's uh, daughter and uh, one of the children from the engine leaving the train, not dying immediately, and seeing a polar bear. So, ironic and somewhat hopeful of an ending. Uh, but yeah, that's the probably too long plot summary. And what what do you guys think of this this really freezing cold world? <laughs> I think it's a good segue after watching The Matrix. Yeah. Because I feel like there's a lot of aspects uh, to this film that are mirrored in Snowpiercer, or that I should say are mirrored in The Matrix, where it's about control and it's about systems of control that you think you have some autonomy. There's the question of predestination or there's, you know, free will. And which do you think is going to come out on top? And then <clears throat> the whole system gets, you know, thrown into a loop at the very end and you're not really sure what is going to happen afterwards or where things are going to go from there um i think it is very much there are aspects of it that seem so theatrical and so you know over the top that you have to just chalk it up to symbolism because it's like if you try to like ground this in some sort of reality you're like this doesn't seem real but then again ever since covid you know what i'll buy it like <laughs> <laughs> ever since and i think we made that joke before it's like you know what uh if you can prove to me that you can jump like chris said in the last one about the matrix like if you can prove to me you can jump from one building to another all right i'll believe that i'm in a simulation i'll believe i'm in the matrix so um but yeah there are some fantastical elements to the story that it's sort of like yeah if we're trying to nitpick you know um but otherwise yeah no i think it's it's very much in keeping uh, with the same sort of dystopians or uh, control that people want to have over humanity. Um, and yet at the same time, you see that nature is able to come back. Perhaps there is that hope that maybe regardless of what humans do to each other, that the world will somehow heal itself over time, that the ice will melt and that animals will come back. So in some respects, I kind of enjoyed the ending of that that we're all kind of on our own crazy train and no matter what we do to ourselves, <laughs> that the planet is going to, the I don't know, like the planet will be okay. That's my hope. But The polar bears win in the end. <laughs> Man, that's the best Coca-Cola commercial I could ever hope for. So yeah. <laughs> really, really could have gotten away with a product placement. Maybe the gel blocks like also had some Coke in them. Who knows? <laughs> But yep. uh, <laughs> I do like what you said about COVID, though, because I think a thing that appealed to me and made me more likely to believe or even like the kind of fantastical elements, especially uh, the clairvoyance that a few of the characters seem to have, is the more crazy your world is and, uh, you know, however it is shifting quickly, like with this pandemic and other things going on I feel like we're constantly going through like once in a generation events right now and I feel like the more turbulent times you're living in the more you're willing just to be like okay yeah that sounds legit <laughs> let's <laughs> let's go with that <laughs> um so I feel like that does like lend some legitimacy to the craziness happening on the train it's just how ridiculous the world already is that the start of the movie um which I like but Chris, what were your kind of first impressions? Yeah, I was going to add too. like my tolerance for like believability in certain things is like completely shifted. Like, you know, I'm not going to say post pandemic because I mean, technically, I think we're still in the midst of all that. But, you know, post like isolation, like mandatory isolation and the world being shut down. Um, but um, yeah, like I hadn't seen this since it came out and um in addition to the temperature, I find this to be a very cold world, like in terms of emotion and sort of um, just the general view of, of the world and, and necessity um, in general. Like I certain things stuck out in my memory, like like the source of the protein bars and the scene with the dude's arm out the like the window. But um, even like with that, like there were so many things that I'd forgotten about that are really sort of fucked up about um the whole existence of this train and what it all takes to um to keep going but uh it's a great movie to watch post parasite in a lot of ways because i see some themes that'll connect and i'm sure we'll talk about that next episode um so i really enjoyed that and kind of being like ooh, like you know this guy likes um using space to like convey 
uh, class differences and other and things like that. And um, I think that like the the fundamental word I would use like um, besides being kind of fucked up is like cool. Like this is just a neat idea and it feels very much like a video game. Like each like sort of sequence is like, all right, you get to the end of like this car and you got like this boss fight and here's the encounter with the dudes with the night vision glasses and um, just the structure of it is really, really cool despite it being kind of a, a downer place to to spend two hours in. So um, I was glad to rewatch it. Had a, had a good time. Yeah, there's a lot of standout scenes for me as well. This was actually my first time watching it, even though it was my pick. I just, I, I love Parasite a lot. I knew this had a lot of similar themes, so I threw it on the board. But um, I I think I really appreciate it because I've watched other films from other directors that dealt with similar issues, like Elysium, for instance, mm. um, where the characters leading the rebellion, um, the oppressed class, weren't as well fleshed out and it made a film that like already is having to be like fairly heavy-handed on themes and messaging like feel all the more two-dimensional whereas here I really appreciated how well fleshed out like side characters were like we had uh, Tanya and her boy um, the other parent who lost uh, his child um you had the the daughter of the security expert you just you have a bigger cast of characters they're shown as like having i don't know unique lives before all this started and i like that also there are artists you can you can see musical instruments hanging on the walls in the tail section too so like it gives a sense of humanity i think in extremely inhumane conditions and we can talk about that in parasite as well but um that that was something that overall impressed me a lot about the film because it I think by nature of the subject matter has to be very overt, <laughs> but uh, I think there's a lot of subtlety in the in the window dressings, so to say. Um, another just general thing that stood out to me, uh, I guess level wise, was the start of the machete scene with the fish and the mm-hmm. <laughs> and the fish blood, and I've heard an anecdote. I don't know if it's true. But apparently uh, Harvey Weinstein was, um, I think, producer or he had some role in this film and um, he really wanted to cut that scene and Bong Joon-ho didn't. He just like really liked how it turned out. So he made up a lie and he was like, oh, no, this is very emotionally uh, important to me. Uh, My father was a fisherman and this is a tribute to him. And Harvey Weinstein bought it. (laughs) So you got to keep the scene. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's, that's like a Hitchcock maneuver right there. Like he used to do shit like that all the time to manipulate, keeping stuff in. I love it. I hope that's true. So uh, Bong Joon-ho, if you ever listen to this, I'm just saying I'm really glad you got that scene in there. It really stood out to me. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of like a, a nice, um, almost like fulcrum point, uh, right? Like, Because that's what leads into the first class section. Or forward car section, whatever they call it. That's a weird like fulcrum, you know, between where they've been, where they're trying to get to. And uh, it's, I would imagine, like for some of the younger people, maybe the first animal that they've ever seen, right? Besides bugs, probably. Yeah. So, um, it probably seems very extravagant to to do that. Um, as just a weird sort of, this is what we're going to do to you. <laughs> I don't know what that's what the intention was, but yeah. I mean, I think it was partly intimidation, partly flaunting the fact they could, you know, waste a fish instead of Mm -hmm. eating it. Um, And partly just to prove that the knives are sharp, right? Mm Because they'd gotten that far because the guns had no bullets. So they're basically proving that they have lethal force now. (laughs) Seems a little symbolic, too, in some respects. Like, well, depending on how much we talk into some of the reveal later, uh, but... More, I guess, more specifically, and I apologize. I'm going to cough here in just a second. <laughs> Go for Ooh. it. Man, I love uh, post-nasal drip. But the, um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the only if it makes me sound cooler, you know, like a smokier voice. But the, uh, I think it's interesting how like later they're, they're talking about like they can only have a certain amount of fish for the upper class because they have to keep that certain equilibrium with what's there so it's almost kind of 
foreshadowing to that mm-hmm. um and that scene and then also to the extent of the reveal at the end about the equilibrium for the entire train um but yeah no i agree it's it, it definitely stands out so even if you're not really sure what's going on or how to interpret it like it's very dis- like it's a very distinguishing moment and i am glad that it was included that's a great point i hadn't thought about that being sort of foreshadowing about um like tying the fish to the population control of the people that's that's some some great insight there man yeah i need to watch i i always feel like i need to watch uh bong joon ho's films like multiple times because i think there is so much symbolism in every like little tiny detail so that's Mm -hmm. a great catch um yeah but i i don't have a particular order to questions on this we're not we're not going from tail to front on this one we can no. hop around the train <laughs> Please. <laughs> uh so yeah we can talk about that reveal if you want um i would love to hear your take especially on gilliam's uh supposed betrayal and what you made of wilford's kind of final monologue when curtis finally confronts him slash offer yeah, I don't know if I believe him or not, because I I believe it's Gilliam that says earlier, like, don't let him speak. Right. And so Cut out his tongue before he gets out a word. Mm-hmm. So you could interpret that as like he knows he's going to reveal the plan and he doesn't want to be betrayed. But also you could take it as a face value, which he doesn't know much about this guy, but he knows that like he's not to be trusted and he's got a silver tongue and may try to seduce you. So I'm I'm at a bit of a crossroads on that. I think the uh, the sadder interpretation is definitely that it is more of a seduction and sort of him trying to save face and not have it look like he's just failed to suppress a rebellion. Um, he's certainly not in a hurry to to reveal what's keeping the engines running. Um, in that moment, and uh, you know, I think maybe the simpler explanation you know would be that uh yeah maybe that that is like how they've you know there's been consistent rebellion she does have the chart with like the 70 percent of you are gonna die there's some supporting stuff there i don't know i think either way it's it's fucked it's probably worse for given that chris evans uh has just revealed to us in the prior scene like where his origins come from it makes it all the more sad i think um also i don't know like does somebody who would cut off like their limbs to feed other people like somebody that would like give up like 70 percent of the population for control i don't know i don't know i i don't have a definitive answer which i feel like is a cop-out and i'm sorry but i i can't come down firmly one way or the other that's that's my line chris (laughs) (laughs) i steal from the best okay (laughs) what about you will i think the i think there's good enough reason to think that he's part of the system some sort of agreement i mean not just in the name itself so like gilliam or wilford is basically william in some respects yeah. not to throw my name in there too but um it's sort <laughs> it was of like, me all along it was yes <laughs> let them know yeah but the uh i think that i think if he's willing to sacrifice part of his body he under his mind would understand the idea of like a certain percentage of people being sacrificed for the sake of the equilibrium of the train so that other people will live so that to me i could see is the rationale for his character that however this arrangement came about that they are both sides of the same coin um and yeah I think that's where I could see that falling. That's at least based on what I have to work with with the film. It's always possible it could it could be something else, and that there is sort of another little trick that we're never really shown. But that's the the feeling that I got. They do show the the phone, I guess, on the wall too. Like they do reveal that mm, that phone do. exists when he's talking to the guy that looks like no uh, no ho um, Frank or whatever from Barry, the guy that's got like alopecia. Mm. Um, yeah, but. Uh, Noho Hank is his name. Sorry from uh, Barry. Sorry if there's Barry fans that listen to the podcast. It's been a while since it's been on. Okay, um, so there's that, and I guess he does also kind of reveal that, like, a hey, he just told you that it's better to hold a woman with two, two mm-hmm. hands. Um, so maybe implies that there's been some information passed along. So yeah, I I see evidence for both as well. Um, with things like the fact that he knows certain specific words that Gilliam has said to Curtis 
Yeah. I'm also thinking this is supposed to be like a fairly advanced train, right? There's got to be microphones. There's cameras. Mm. Like, there's got to be microphones. <laughs> um, Like, there's there, there can't be that many secrets or any secrets, really, at least from people in charge. And we actually, we do see a very brief shot of what looks like a security monitoring room, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think just the fact that he knows about that conversation really says anything, but I do put a lot of weight into how like directorially things are juxtaposed. So you do have that confession from Curtis right before this scene. And he is talking about just how important Gilliam is to him and his identity and his whole will for surviving and doing this thing, right? Like Gilliam is kind of the focus of that. And what does Wilfred decide to say to him to try to break his spirit? Gilliam's a traitor. So I, it feels like he was just trying to break him to me. That's the where I come down on it. Um, I also feel like metaphorically I do believe Gilliam could be you know trying to portray someone who's constantly acting against like their class interests for instance in order to keep the status quo and keep things from getting worse right um but I just in the world of the movie like thinking a little bit beyond metaphor I I don't quite buy the betrayal I think Sure, they probably were in contact from time to time, but I don't think it went to the extent Wilfred wanted to, you know, imply. Personally. Could be that it changed his mind, too. Like, it's very possible that maybe, like, what he's saying is true to an extent, but, like, maybe Gilliam on this particular, like, instance was, like, ready to go all the way, so to speak. Maybe there was some regret there, and uh, I don't know. Sometimes when you mix lies with truth, it's, like, the most effective kind of shit you know maybe that's why it's hard to come down for me <laughs> so. i think there's some truth to that as well mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we talked a bit about gilliam wilford what do you guys think about curtis i think that confession at the end uh really rounds him out as a character in a lot of ways um it's a very stark contrast from um, hey, I'll give you the ball for an hour, you know, with the little kid and sort of this like softness and tenderness. And he seems very white knight for most of the movie. So to kind of reveal where he started off and came from sort of the sins of the past. I like that character touch a lot. Um, That being said, I, I had trouble sometimes getting past like the Chris Evans is like this of, of him like at times, like, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, no, I know what you're talking about, <laughs> you know, um, you don't so... think that Chris Evans knows what babies taste like. Oh, Jesus. I hope not. Army Hansen probably does, but he's not in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, um, yeah, that's, that's, um, but like, yeah, that's one of my favorite lines because I, I thought like, oh man, chill me to the bone. Definitely this most recent time, and I'm sure did the first time, but I've forgotten about it. Like, I hate that I know what that babies taste best. I hate that I know what humans taste like, and I hate that I know that babies taste best. And it's just like, oh, Jesus. Um, but yeah, like, I, I liked his character, um, a lot, but it's that last half hour, I think, that really, um, kind of cements him as, uh, as interesting or more complex than like the first hour and a half of the movie. I do think that it is one of those things where you sort of wonder whether he is just if he is a better leader because he doesn't want to be that it's usually the people that seek power that abuse it the most and so it's like he maybe he is the people he is the person that they need even though he has such a that we find out later is such a terrible you know history with it conversely though everybody who's with him with the exception of like maybe two other people don't really make it to the end of the train so it's i don't know it's hard to really to pin down because it's like everybody's always everybody's just trying to to fight to be on top and at the end of it you know who's really left from it um but i do think it is it's interesting to see somebody who you have an impression of and not having known their history to think of them one way and then to find out later 
you know, where they've come from and how they've evolved as a character. And so I think in some respects, at least at the at the very least of it, I find him to be a fascinating character for the, the sake of the story. Yeah, it's like a little bit of a betrayal to the audience there, too. And it, it, it again, juxtaposition, it kind of mirrors the betrayal that Curtis is feeling with Gilliam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you put all this trust into this person who is your white knight and, oh, whoops, no, also did all these terrible things. Um, so, yeah, I love those two scenes just just together. I, I was already enjoying the movie, but when that happened, I was kind of like, OK, now now this is <laughs> now this is the film. I also want to talk about like some cinematography and what makes this feel like a Bong Joon-ho film. But I have one more kind of, I guess, character plot story related question before that. And that is, if you're in, if you're in Curtis's shoes, standing in that engine, what would you do? (laughs) So we're boiling it down to, take the job basically or blow the door or like or can we get like more nuance than that and what you said basically take the job or blow the door or uh you know a third secret option it's very mm. video gamey as well <laughs> to get the secret ending you, you, gotta, you gotta take a piece of sushi and hide it in your pocket and at the right time <laughs> somebody mm. Yeah, it's a tough choice. Um, can I like? Can the third secret option be like pick a better place to fucking stop the train and blow it up in <laughs> in the goddamn mountains, like in can Alaska or wherever they are? Like, because I feel like I would take the option to blow the doors, like if it was somewhere that was maybe like a bit more like shelter and shit nearby, you know. But not while well, part of the train is on a bridge and. <laughs> <laughs> you're yeah. still moving at high velocity <laughs> yeah i think i mean like philosophically like getting like off the train if there was enough if i felt like there's enough of a chance to survive outside of that um back to our matrix discussion i'd probably give people the option and certainly like would you know stop the train at least temporarily to let anybody like like especially the people in the, the rear car i feel like are like fucking take our chances like out where we have room to spread out and some shelter. Maybe the first class fucks, you know, want to continue to be first class fucks. And then here, like off on your way, you know, everyone's happy. You can, you can keep your, your fish and shit. Um, Cause it, like, it doesn't really seem like anybody in the rear car has any particular like jobs or anything, right? Like there, there's no real function other than, you know, the kids for the, the perpetual motion machine. That's not really a perpetual motion machine. Uh, not that I'm aware of. I've not read yeah. the graphic novel yet, although I plan to. Um, I think that it's basically just the metaphorical contribution of keeping the engine running. Gotcha. Uh, cool thing about the graphic novel, the person that did the illustrations is the one that actually did the charcoal drawings that you see all throughout the uh, the film. So there's a little nice. tidbit. I happened to pause it at the right moment and Amazon video where I rented it from was like, here's a, a bit of trivia. And I was like, fuck, I didn't know that this thing did this. Like, I'd be pausing movies every five seconds here if I knew I could do this. Go, uh, but anyway, yeah, that's my answer. In a nutshell, stop the train, let people off if they want and then <laughs> go on. All right. What about you, Will? All right, Chris. So you're saying you you would stop the train. You would you would actually hit the brakes, is what you're saying. You wouldn't blow the door and just, you wouldn't take over as the conductor. You would just like maybe incapacitate Wilford and then like put the brakes down at a at a good stopping point and is let the little lads option? and lasses that are down there, you know, mm-hmm. doing all their shit. Like yeah, yeah, pull them out. Yeah, let the train just slow down and stop. Okay. And I was, just, say, I was like, just asking your solution was, to fix this. Answer. You're fucking brilliant genius like you know i think that's also a betrayal for the audience is like because he's all kind of implying that he's made a perpetual motion machine right and then when the fucking door it's like the wizard of oz reveal of like well it's let's look behind the curtain here but anyway mm-hmm. yeah sorry will didn't mean to steal your thunder there no you're good because honestly my answer would have been the same thing it would be just to stop the train just to find the break you know we don't have to tank the whole thing you know we could just <laughs> slow it down you know maybe but uh um yeah i think that's probably where it would fall i uh i'm trying to think if there's anything else that i would would put to that i mean don't get me wrong i can understand that after having seen how everybody acts on the train 
that it's tempting to want to just say screw it just blow everything up but you know then there's always the risk that you just kill everybody which is kind of what it seemed like to happen you know with the exception of like two people that come out of the train at the end you don't really know about the fate of everybody else and i think the director even mentioned like when he was asked about it that everybody else at least in his mind was dead so it's yeah no i would have to i'd have to agree find the find the break you know it doesn't have to be one or the other we don't have to continue the matrix of control and we don't have to murder everybody just pump some you know pump the brakes a little bit yeah you two are very sensible um my only uh the only reason i hesitate to say the same thing is it did seem like they had a lot of people coming to kill them at any second and time was of That's the true. essence. Um, and so I understand the decision to blow the door, especially if you have grossly miscalculated how explosive your uh, <laughs> <laughs> explosive device actually is. So I'm yeah. sympathetic to that. I think in the heat of the moment, I might've made the same decision, but uh, ideally uh, cooler heads would have prevailed and I would have pulled the brakes for sure yeah it's a good point they couldn't really close they, they were trying to close the door unsuccessfully also there was a little bit more urgency than there needed to be because they already lit the goddamn fuse but um i feel like maybe he tried to close the door and then hit the brakes like next time next movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> when yeah, the world the actually show. freezes over and we end up on a train we'll know what to do <laughs> exactly exactly don't eat the brown protein bars please it is not an mm. rx bar hey at least it's not like people i i thought that was going to be the plot twist i thought it was going to be like people in it's there. not soil and green yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah um what were some defining features of this film as a bong joon ho production i mentioned earlier that he's definitely known for like dark humor and heavy social themes which we've talked a bit about I know for me, the biggest one is just kind of like uh, action whiplash. Like it, it'll be a fairly quiet, normal moment. And then kind of out of nowhere, with no buildup, there's going to be sudden violence or action. Um, again, we'll talk about that with Parasite as well. But uh, <laughs> um, that's kind of what stood out to me here is like you're kind of expecting violence, given that this whole thing is about a rebellion, right? But he still manages to surprise you in the moments that it does come out, especially like towards the end with um, the arm getting ripped off and all the people coming out and fighting. And um, I I was glad that he still made me surprised in certain scenes. I think the spacing of everything, you know, you're in this very thin train car and you have to be able to visually you know feel like you're in it but also just how cramped everything feels whether you're in the the tail of the of the train or even when you're moving through and you're trying to imagine like what this has to be like for this ecosystem to exist and some of the different creative and almost fantastical ways that you're shown that when they get to the upper class but i think yeah it was just it was the idea of just being in this very cramped space that claustrophobia that sets in that then seeing how it brightens up with the same amount of space give or take it felt like it was the same amount of space just strangely but it was like you know just how it all changed when you got to the you know to the head of the train um and then strangely enough almost felt like it became another prison at the head you know where it's just wilford by himself in his own his own world with the exception of like his assistant <laughs> randomly with the gun but yeah i think that to me was probably the most striking feature about it and what i enjoyed the most was just being able to feel like you could still move around in this space as the audience and yet also experience just how like tight everything felt yeah the use of space and lighting did a lot of work for sure um especially in just giving you a feel for the different rooms like if you contrast even though ostensibly all these train cars originally were looked the same on the inside right um if you contrast like the the kids school room with the tail of the train those have totally different feels to them despite being on the same train um yeah so wealth disparity certainly like a thematic element and cinematography wise kind of using the space speaking of which to kind of illustrate that as being 
sort of like like there's a very clear distinction between the two sections of the train um so i really like that um i think sort of uh and i haven't seen all of the hosts like it's probably a movie i should try to go back and watch because i thought it was ridiculous the first i tried to watch it as like just a horror movie that like monster movie and i was not having a good time but i wasn't really familiar with like his work and you know thematics but um both in parasite and this film you sort of have like this um invasion like of like the the you know wealthy like uh folks by the like people that are struggling and they upset the balance and then there's in both of these films sort of nature as like this impartial third party so like the flood mm. again we'll talk about that in parasite and sort of just the outdoor conditions in general on this film as being sort of like the great equalizer between uh the two in some ways and then in others like again we'll talk in parasite like not so so much i think he has a bit of a change of heart in that but in at least in snowpiercer mother nature seems to be impartial um and I like that. I think it's an interesting sort of take on it, but like particularly the use of, of space for sure. Um, there was something else too that, um, oh, oh yeah. So speaking of space too, I think like just somehow, even though like the train is like the same width, the front cars feel so much more spacious like there's so much more empty space that's immediately noticeable like you think like the opening shot of everybody like standing shoulder to shoulder being counted and like kind of sitting down with their bunks look like to just like two people and like a big giant jacuzzi like tub thing and of course it's even remarked upon when chris evans is um standing in the uh you know the midst of the heart of the engine and he's like oh you've never been alone like that might be the most extravagant thing on the train it's just solitude um which you know and being a little cheeky here made me wonder like boy it must be tough going on a date uh on this fucking thing like um <laughs> n- not much in the way of privacy for courtship so um yeah but um yeah that, that's some of the things i kind of connected uh now having seen this after parasite which helped yeah i like what you said about uh mother nature as a largely impartial third party although the only reason it's it's you know freezing cold is because humans fucked up right so (laughs) maybe it's impartial to the class war but it's not impartial to humanity (laughs) no certainly not yeah for class disparity for sure wealth disparity sure yeah yeah um the only other thing i guess i noticed and i i wanted to add to my earlier comments uh with like the sudden action and sudden violence the egg scene was amazing <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> everyone's yeah. just like so charmed and it feels so off and then they put out the guns and it's like okay now we're back <laughs> to <the laughs> regularly scheduled slaughter so yeah that was that was very uh function ho and then i think the only other thing is just I again I noticed this a lot with Parasite, which we'll talk about later, but there's a lot of texture, I think, to the film that I like. And and a lot of action films have a lot of CGI and a lot of um airbrushing of people and things. And I like how this film just felt like there was a lot of texture to all the different areas. Like you can kind of like feel the grime <laughs> in the grimy areas. And in like the really pretty places, everything feels very tactile as well. Um, again, I don't know exactly how he got that effect or why it stood out so much to me, but it was nice and grounding in a otherwise fairly fantastical film. Oh, like it, it certainly feels gross when it needs to feel gross and extravagant when it needs to feel extravagant. I agree. That's all I had prepared. Do you guys have any other comments for Snowpiercer? I don't. Um, I'm very excited to talk about Parasite in connection with this. And like, I've been trying to kind of hold back a little bit. You know, the temptation is certainly there to say more about the next film. But I I imagine our next conversation will link back to some of the stuff here and kind of, you know, draw some conclusions and and all that good stuff. So I'm going to I'm going to keep it zipped for now. (laughs) They're going to draw all the conclusions. Don't worry. (laughs) Or jump to them like an office space. 
maybe I'll make a jump to conclusion um thing on the the, the board. Nice. You yeah. should. <laughs> um, Will, do you have any final thoughts? I think that about covers it. All righty. Um, can I interest you guys in a game? Yeah. Yes, please. Please. <laughs> All right. I don't know why I said that kind of creepy. Sorry. <laughs> Would you like to play a game? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I have a trivia game. I have another one planned for next week. That's going to be trivia related to both films, but this is just related to Snowpiercer and its source material. So I have not read the graphic novel, but I have read about the graphic novel and came up with five questions for you too. Uh, each question is worth one point, and you will see who the victor is at the end. Um, I think I already gave you a bit of background info. It's a French graphic novel uh, published in 1982. Have either of you read it besides the pages that appeared in the film? Nope. Cool. Um, oh, and it was origi- originally titled, and I'm going to bur- butcher this, Le Transpersonier. Je. Sounds good to me. I did <laughs> nailed didn't it. take French, but like one year in high school, so perfect. Yeah, I'm making my college French teacher very disappointed, but it's okay. <laughs> Question one: The train in Snowpiercer is around a hundred cars long, but the train in the novel is even longer. How many cars did the original Snowpiercer have? The closest answer wins. Price is right rules, or just the closest in general? Closest answer. Okay, just making sure. So the film version has around 100 and the novel has more. Will, would you like to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll say 150. 150 for Will? All right. I am going to say 300. I'm going to go big. All right. So, in the graphic novel, the original Snowpiercer has a thousand and one cars. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jesus. If you thought that yeah. the movie was fantastical, uh, he dialed it down, actually. <laughs> How long did it take him to get it's to the head a, of the It's a lot of cars. It's a lot of cars. So, that is a point for Chris. Woohoo. Nice. Uh, if they're like a hundred meters a piece, that that's that's uh, that's a lot of meters. I'm bad at math, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, editor Chris will just have to put the math on the screen somewhere. <laughs> Look right over there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, question two: <clears throat> Which movie character do you think is most closely adapted from their book counterpart? Hmm. Anybody. Anybody, anybody. Hmm. Promise I'm not cheating. I'm just looking up character names. I only have I know, yeah. It's like <laughs> Wikipedia up for please help me. Yeah. Because I'm trying to remember mm. her their name. But yes. Okay. Mm. I have an answer. I'm gonna say Mason, Minister Mason, the Tilda Swinton character. Just because oh, I, I also talk about Tilda Swinton. I love them. I know. Uh, what about you, Will? I'm going to go with Gilliam. Okay. Uh, that was a trick question. I was mean. Uh, none. <laughs> These are all originally uh, like movie characters. None of them actually come from the book. <laughs> God damn. All right. Well, uh, but I would have given you guys a point if you'd said either Curtis or Wilford, because uh, they do have close-ish counterparts. Still fairly different in terms of social status and uh, like personality, but so. fair play it was a good tiebreaker, <laughs> if nothing else. There, <laughs> uh, number three, the movie doesn't exactly have a happy ending, but there is some hope. It is very different from the ending of the novel, which ends with everyone but Proloff, the protagonist in the novel, dying. Can you hmm. guess what killed off most of the remaining passengers? the french it's probably like bad cuisine or something like that stereotyping. i'm gonna say disease egg. i'm gonna say like Ooh. disease like they're like the separation mm-hmm. of classes and the, the different cars like seems to make sense like kind of a war of the world thing where the, they're not used to the microbes that would probably i don't know how long they've been doing this shit in the book but 
That's my okay. answer. Chris, Chris taken the biologist angle. What about you, Will? I'm going to go a little bit closer to the movie and I'm going to say a bomb. A bomb. Okay. Yeah. Well, I also would have guessed bomb if I was doing this, but it, it, Chris is actually right. It is a plague. Nice. Oh, yeah. I wasn't 100% right, but close enough for uh, for government. Work, yeah, right? okay. like, I'll count it. A plague is in the class of disease, right? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well done. Uh, question number four. Will, you're still in this. Nah. Um, <laughs> of the many foods only the upper class has access to in the movie, only one of those foods is also eaten by the book's upper class. Which one? And I know I phrased that weirdly, but basically there's certain foods only the upper class can eat in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in the book, only one of those foods is the same. Oh, uh, from the film to the, uh, yeah. the graphic novel? Okay, gotcha. I'm going to say the egg. That's also I was going to say. Okay. Les oof. <laughs> <laughs> Are you both going with egg? Yeah. It is actually the fruit, which brings up the question of scurvy of for everyone else. But yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Interestingly, um, there's only four foods in total in the graphic novel that anyone eats. Uh, it is dead rats for the <laughs> tail section. <laughs> That's an upgrade uh, from the roaches, if you ask me. <laughs> synthesized meat for the middle class. And then fruit and rabbit. For the upper class. Of course. Okay. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> uh, last question. No cigarettes. No tobacco. No. <laughs> That's not a food, technically. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It depends right. on who you ask in France, right? Like, is that I was going to say, somewhere out there, there's a Frenchman going, I beg to differ. <laughs> uh, we apologize for our stereotyping, but is it really a stereotype? Yeah. And again, I have not read the French, the graphic novel yet, but it is a 1982 French book. Like, I am sure there's plenty of cigarettes in it. There's got to be tobacco on that train. Come on, a thousand cars. <laughs> Absolutely. Probably at least like 200 of their cars are just for tobacco. (laughs) (laughs) I kid, I kid. All right. Last question. Uh, True or false? Both Wilford from the movie and the engineer, his closest counterpart in the book, uh, are obsessed with the train's engine. So true or false? Are they both obsessed with the train's engine? I feel like this is a trick question, but... I'm going to fall for it and say yes. I say true. Okay. Chris? Just to be contrary, I'm going to say false. And if I had to give a reason, um, and nah, I, yeah, I'm just going to say false. I don't have a reason. <laughs> just to, I'm just going to be contrarian. Okay. Well, Will's correct. Will's Woo-hoo! on the board. Unfortunately, yes. that was my last question, though. It doesn't so matter. Sorry. I'll take one. Uh, so Chris wins two to one. Yay, two to nice. one. Congrats to both well of you. Played. Yes, well played. Well yes. played, good sir. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that was just guessing, not even trivia, but hopefully it was fun. Definitely. Oh, I look forward absolutely. to next week's. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, okay, so what I'm going to do through the magic editing here is I'm going to draw the card. And I'll keep the footage um, and then I won't reveal it until maybe next week's episode and we can just, uh, you know, we'll, we'll intersperse that. So, well, spliced in here, we have just now resumed and uh, oh, hold on. Nope, that's a lie. I I, I have to uh, I'll just blur it out. I'll blur it out on the board so you can't see the uh, the category, <laughs> but it's spliced in here with hopefully a nice blurry effect like over there. Um, we have drawn a card um, for a guest who will be filling in for Will temporarily, not replacing because Will is irreplaceable, but it will allow Will to have a a nice little vacation. And next week we'll be talking about Parasite. So um, if you haven't seen this, strap in. It's quite the ride. I would urge you not to look anything up. I think this movie is best enjoyed pure. I knew nothing about it. Just saw the poster. That was my only knowledge of the film and it made it all the better. So would you guys agree? 100%. Yes, but as always, 
I love the does the dog die site if you have Ugh. any particular things, especially since one of my particular triggers is in this movie and I didn't know about it. Bugs? <laughs> was it bugs? No, no, I'm kidding. No, no, I'll tell no, you no, after. No. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, that that is always a good point. I would say never not a bad idea. If you are prone to, you know, everyone's got a sort of different spectrum of uh I guess tolerance levels and things that uh, that may bug them. <laughs> um, it's not bugs. Yes. I'm fine with bugs. No, no, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Just you know, making a dad joke. Got to squeeze one in every episode. All right, um, but yeah. Until next time, we appreciate you tuning in and watching. Very soon, uh, likely upon Will's return, we will reveal our new cards and categories for uh, at the very least our main quest. Uh, not the films, of course, because we like that to be a surprise. Um, but you'll get a, a little sneak peek into what we have planned and you can count on seeing more guests and audience participation moving forward. So uh, more on that to come. But uh, in the meantime, thanks for watching and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye, Bye guys.